Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Welcome back to the Addiction Connection and our... 29th. Yeah, 29th. I keep thinking COVID, but our 29th addiction topic. This is 29 weeks of sitting at this table, looking across and trying to talk. (laughs) Um, So last week, we actually did a little talk on anxiety disorders, kind of an overview from, as they say, from high above anxiety disorders. The high level overview. Yes, the forest. Yes. And today we're doing that same thing with mood disorders. And our plan is to break them down over time. So this would be mood disorders one. The overview. Or or like the primer or primer, if you want to say it that way. Primer. Potato, potato. Primer. I've never heard of that. You are so old. Anyway, so we're going to break this down, um, starting with depression, then bipolar, uh, focusing on bipolar one, then versus bipolar two. So those will be overviewed here and then the deep dive coming up. Later, in later episodes, if we don't get cut by a buzzsprout. <laughs> Jeez. As long as y'all keep listening to the podcast, we should get to that. It's like we'll get that email. You're no longer a podcast. You got... Anyway, let's move on. So unipolar yeah. depression. You got voted off the island. Okay, go ahead. He's still going. This is Survivor, and you are not surviving I've, right I've now. I've never seen that show. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Back to unipolar depression. Um, lifetime prevalence of unipolar depression just in general, 12%. Um, developed countries, so like us here in the U.S., 18%. Two times higher in women. Again, here we go. And more likely to be in Caucasians for whatever reason, according to the data. Yeah. So why do people have depression? Well, they work with you. Yeah, that could be part of it. Uh, but, it, you know, likely it represents kind of a heterogeneous disorder, right? It's not just one thing. Uh, it may just kind of be that, that final common pathway, you know, of different disease processes, you know, really across that whole kind of biopsychosocial continuum. So it's like... Oh, back to the neurobiology? It's actually a neurobiology thing, which mm-hmm. I don't even want to go into. This is the overview. So... so Is it really heterogeneous? <laughs> heterogeneous. It's heterogeneous. So depression, hmm, major depression occurs more often in patients that have these kind of specific risk factors. So there's three different main risk factors. We'll break them down here. So there's internalizing factors. So people who have low self-esteem, they have a history of depression, begets other depression. They are neurotic. Um, Genetically, they're more predisposed. And if they have early onset anxiety in their life, they're much more likely to have depression later on. Yeah. And of course, the things on the outside, right? The genetics. Which is on both inner and outer. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. But uh, And again, substance misuse, that uh, can be a kind of precipitating cause and, and of course, conduct disorder. So, and then the third would just be adversity in their lives. Yeah, and we do meet these people where a lot of things have gone wrong. And, uh, you know, how long can people kind of keep their dopamine levels up when that's all going on? So Right. So the neurobiology, again, so good thing I'm doing this, is, yeah, you ahead. know, the neurobiology of depression is associated with this neurobiological changes, as we already talked about. And the specific... Sp- sp- 
Go ahead, say specific. <laughs> specific areas in the brain, the HPA, the hypothalamic pituitary axis, the neural networks, frontal cortex, subcortical structures, and a lot of other so, things they probably have yet to really ferret down. Yeah. And of course, how do you diagnose this? Man, you know, you got to ask questions. You got to talk to people. <gasps> Wait. Yeah, you can't just what? look at somebody and know. And of course, the history is really the most important part. You know, it's that whole, you know, is there depression more days than not? You know, the, the anhedonia. I hate that word. Anhedonia. Anhedonia. Those uh, are the big two. Yeah, those you're are You're going to screen two things. You screen those, too. Yeah. I mean, and you're going to, if you get those, you've got, you probably got the diagnosis. And of course, in so much in our practices, we see insomnia and hypersomnia. Because when you're stressed out and you're de- or you're depressed, what's the best of the escape? It's to lay in bed all day, mm-hmm. to sleep. Go, well, back other... to, go back to when you're in college and you're in the middle of finals and you can just sleep all the time. No, I couldn't. I could. <laughs> and of course, weight changes. The, you know, more often, um, probably weight gain. Right. In, in my experience, I think, looking back. Right. Decreased energy, poor concentration, feelings of worthlessness. And then, of course, the the one we always worry about is the suicidal thoughts or ideations. Um, and the best screening tool that we have is the PHQ-9. And, you know, I mentioned those first two. So sometimes clinics will have that screening PHQ-2. And then if any of those was yes, then they'll break it down further. And we'll go into these details, of course, more in a future podcast. Yeah, and that sensitivity, again, you know, if it's a positive screen, you know, about 90% of the time, this is a patient with depression. All right. Well, you know, we mentioned that you can't always just know. There are times, though, let's be real, you walk into an exam room and you're just like, you either feel the anxiety emanating or you just feel this sense of, maybe I'm just that in tune with people's energies. Yeah, and those mood rings you wear. So, so treatment. Let's talk. I hand it to the patient before COVID. Put this on. Yeah, before you see your color. Back when you could actually touch other objects, people have touched. So, with treat this with major depression. uh, You know, the mainstay, of course, the medications and psychotherapy. And there's been a lot of studies that have shown that really the combination is better than really either alone. And I think it really depends on how severe they are. Obviously, I mean, if this a major depression. And the suicidal issues and such, yeah, you need both. Oh, I need to jump on that. But sometimes it's really hard. I found it, obviously people who have significant depression to get them to want to go to psychotherapy because that's just, again, they have no pleasure. They're very non-motivated because they're so depressed that it's hard to really get to that point. But patients will tell you once they, they did both, it really did help. But again, SSRIs generally your first line. I think one of the things to always remember uh True is that one of the first things to come back when people start SSRIs, which are one of the most common first-time medications, is often it's their motivation that comes back first. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially in those younger people, we worry a little bit about uh, suicide at that point. So it's always remembering uh, to ask about that. Right. And you really want to do a little bit of screen for mood disorders, which we'll talk about in a minute with the bipolars, um, because sometimes the medication choices are a little bit different, but we will get into that. Overall, though, lifetime prevalence of depression in people who use alcohol or drugs and who are in these uh, treatment centers is 20 to 50 percent. So one in two or to one in four people will also have depression. What did you say? One in two or one in four? No. Well, that's Yeah, I think you messed that up. No, 50 percent to a quarter. No, it's 20 percent. 25 percent. 20. 
Well, okay. I rounded up a little. Anyway, okay. So, ten to twenty percent of the time, it is concurrent or it is current, not rather than just this lifetime. Usually, they have depression on top of their active use. Sorry, not to correct you or anything, but so uh, and of course, of course, co-occurrence with drug or alcohol disorders and major depression. You know, alcohol. You know, it's four times higher in females, and in males, about three times higher. So, again, with alcohol and depression, huge crossover. Well, then if you're looking at other substances, uh, you know, drug use, especially female and male here, we're actually equal nine times higher um, of having this co-occurrence with depression. So I think it's easy to just talk to somebody, start them on an SSRI and walk out. But I think the the most important thing always for me is asking about, you know, are are you drinking? Are you... You know, using other substances that is to anything help you a, cope to help you cope, and uh, you need to ask those questions. All right, so we're going to shift a little bit from depression to another um, mood disorder, bipolar, which kind of mentioned broken down into two types: type one, um, where you have the legitimate extreme mania with major depression, and then type po- <laughs> type two, type two, more hypomanic or hypomania. So it's not that full blown mania. And then at least one episode of major depression with it. Yeah, lifetime prevalences, of course, for bipolar one are actually, uh, you know, these are low. I mean, they're like one percent, you know, for both one and two. So, you know, you're talking one in a hundred people that will have these. Well, and interestingly, the first age where you're going to start seeing bipolar, um, bipolar one is around age eighteen versus bipolar two right around twenty. And so sometimes I think this is a really hard diagnosis in general because this is a huge transition in life. You graduated from high school, you might be in college, starting to worry about what you're going to do with your life. So to really break this down is it can be challenging, but it's definitely something to be aware of. I think one of the ways that I've uh, messed this up sometimes when I'm interviewing patients, especially when you see this younger group and they their sleep and awake cycles are way different than mine were at age 20. And if you ask them if they're, you know, do you ever find that you're up all night or doing things? Well, they're up, up all night a lot playing video games, but they sleep all day. It's not like they're up all day and all night. So you need to make sure that you ask, well, then do you sleep? Uh, you can't just say, have you been up all night a lot, you know, two, three nights in a row? Yeah. You know, I play video games all night, but they sleep all day. Right. Just a thought. So to really diagnose it, you know, is is you really want to try to get this down again. Is this bipolar one or two? Um, bipolar one with the true mania. This is where, you know, people are getting grandiose. They're spending all their money. They're, they're yeah, it's a little bit more extreme, but you have this elevated, expansive, irritable mood, you're for greater than a week, you're up all day, every day, grandiose, you are not sleeping. Day or night. It's crazy. So, And just these racing thoughts, you get in a room with a patient with this and they just go and go and go. Like the Energizer Bunny, but in like a Energizer Bunny on speed. But what's the big thing to make sure of? That it is not drug-induced. Yeah. And so... Certainly, as you see patients and they and there's a concern about mania, it cannot be diagnosed when somebody, for instance, is using methamphetamine. And most places would say, well, you need to be not using for 30 days at, around that time to make sure that this is true mania and not drug-induced mania. Well, I think sometimes you'll get a patient who's been using, whether it's opioids, uh, meth, or both, and... You see that on their their med list or their problem list that they have bipolar. And when you really get down to it, 
and ask the questions. This no, they, someone gave them this diagnosis once they're already using, but it ends up being the cycle of they were using opioids, so they look depressed. They're using meth, so they're up. But again, you got to get that whole week of grandiosity. And another thing just to remember is if they had that diagnosis, you really want to see if they were taking their meds because, again, more often than not, they aren't taking their meds anyway. Um, so don't just jump to throwing them back on it especially if they've been using. Yeah, so the hypomania, you know, so you're looking at the bipolar 2s. Remember, same kind of thing except less of it. So it's like a much smaller cup of coffee here. So instead of a whole week of being up, it's just four days or less. And so, you know, this is a group that, you know, is not severe enough to really cause social impairment. In fact, they may function very well if they're working at night uh, and they're and it's not drug-induced. So... Uh, you know, these are probably the ones that are a little tougher to ferret out. Mm-hmm. So what causes bipolar? It's actually not known. So we're not going to give you the same spiel as, you know, there's all this stuff. But there have been certain heritable factors when you looked at family and twin studies. So the lifetime risk, if you're a monozygotic twin, so identical twin, 40 to 70%. So even it's not 100% there. So there's got to be some type of environmental something. Yeah. Oh, did you mention the dyes I got? I didn't. I was uh, letting you, you were, talk. You just threw that up so I could hit it. I did, um, and you swung and missed. Yeah, so <laughs> lifetime. And if you look at dizygotic twins, really only 5% concordance. So uh, a little bit different. So, But definitely that, you know, a little bit on both sides, environmental and genetic. So what about treatment? Yeah, treatment is, you know, and we're going to go through this list of treatment right here and just glancing at it ahead of time. It's it's changed even from this, um, especially for the bipolar twos. Um, but it's definitely treat different than just treating depression or anxiety. Um, but you treat hypomania mania the same. If they're in a severe manic grandiose state, um, lithium is your first line. It's going to bring them down much faster um, than valproate and sometimes antipsychotics as second line um, you need to, to kind of stabilize. Yeah. Some of the hypomania, you know, more than mild to moderate, they can do well on different things, Cyprexa, Risperidol. Uh, I have a couple of patients with uh, with this issue and do well uh, on olanzaprine. So. Well. Again, this is shifting because I see a lot of Lamictal or even Tegretol for these yep. um, rather than going to the antipsychotics, which, of course, have so many side effects. The big weight gain. <laughs> That's a double. Yeah. But yes. Um, and benzos, again, very, very short term only if needed because this is a group that... Also will use a lot of different substances. Correct. So speaking of, what's the prevalence here? The prevalence? Or the association, I should say. Uh, I was going to say, what are you talking about? So the association really of uh, bipolar and SUD is really uh, huge. And it's, it's really greater uh, than the depressive disorders, really by a factor of four. So uh, often when we see bipolar patients, and uh, I think Dr. Reznikoff, when he was on talking about some of the artists with bipolar disorder and uh, uh, and some of the issues with substances, it's really big. You know, if you look at lifetime alcohol, it's almost 50-50, almost mm-hmm. 50%. And, history, you know, illicit drug use, they have a forty, almost 44% chance of having bipolar, or the co-occurrence, excuse me. Yeah, and and really 60% of the patients with bipolar, you know, have some lifetime substance use. Uh, you know, it, obviously, uh, just like everything, men more than women, well, we just tend to really go, I don't know. Um, um, so, yeah. Really, there's not a lot of difference between mixed bipolar mania, blah, blah, blah. One thing, you know, speaking of the whole artist thing, like Charlie mentioned, is that 
sometimes people will want that manic state. Yeah. You know, they'll want that because it makes them more creative in their minds. They'll want to do this. And then, um, I mean, you'll see it on the news. You'll see it with famous people who are very artistic, you know, and whether it's musicians or comedians Mm -hmm. or actors or actresses, you know, they'll want to be off their meds. And then you see them on the news doing very grandiose, grandiose, weird things. And stabilization gets harder. Yeah. I think they, they all feel like they just lose their that creativity as soon mm-hmm. as they it just flattens them out. And I've seen some articles on some of the different comedians that have talked about that, that on medications they just didn't quite, they weren't the same. They mm-hmm. just weren't as good. So uh, it's a struggle. And of course, that 12-month prevalence of, uh, you know, kind of independent mood and anxiety disorders with substance use disorders who sought treatment in the last 12 months, well, any mood disorder, 60%. Major depression, 44. Mania, 20. Hypomania, 2. Yeah. So any anxiety disorder, again, about 42%. And social anxiety disorder, about 12%. So, you know, it's, uh, again, the crossover is huge. Any pearls for us, Dr. Bell? Pearls. So, yeah, there's a few. So if anybody has any type of mental health disorder, it does, you know, make you be aware of they have higher rates of opioid use higher daily doses of opioids. They have longer duration of treatment. They've been used, they need longer treatment. And oftentimes they have been using multiple opioids. Often they'll have the concurrent benzos, which, you know, just makes it challenging. Except of course, opioids plus benzos, you have increased risk. So just another thing to watch for. And I think the really, this is one of the, uh, one of the little statistics that has always just amazed me. that That's why I'm letting you say it. I know. I kind of like that. That 16% of Americans that with that have these mental health disorders get half of the opioids prescribed. So it's really important uh, to really look at that. And that's why we push so hard for patients on chronic opioids for pain that they get screened for opioid use disorder as well. Because people with mental health issues... You know, they need to be screened for mental health issues and they need to be screened for opioid use disorder. Well, and that their mental health issues are treated appropriately with the correct treatments as well. Yep. So anyway. I think that's it. You think that's it? Okay. I hope somebody learned something out there. <laughs> Besides just you, because you probably forgot this all. Yeah, I just remembered it all now. <laughs> All right. Well, we'd like to have Battle Lakes take on over. We really appreciate you listening. And uh, there'll be another one posted next week. Thanks. Thanks.